This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about what's next for Bernie and Hillary with Harold Meyerson. And we'll also remember the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the Americans who went to fight fascism in Spain in the 1930s and who died for their beliefs. Adam Hochschild has that story. His new book is Spain in Our Hearts. First up today, we're still thinking about the mass shooting in Orlando on Saturday night at that gay club Pulse, where 49 people were killed and 53 injured by a man with a military-style assault weapon. You probably heard that it was the worst act of terrorism in the United States since September 11, 2001, and the deadliest attack on a gay target in American history. For comment, we turn to Nadine Smith. She's the co-founder and CEO of Equality Florida, it's the state's largest organization dedicated to ending discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. She's a former award-winning journalist who turned organizer. She was one of four national chairs of the 1993 March on Washington, and she was part of the historic Oval Office meeting with President Bill Clinton, the first meeting between a sitting president and gay community leaders. She also served on President Obama's National Finance Committee, and she currently serves on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights Florida Advisory Committee. Nadine Smith, welcome to the program. Thank you for uh, reaching out. Well, we record our show in L.A., and what we know here about Orlando is mostly about Disney World and the theme parks. What has it been like for gays and lesbians to live in Orlando over the last decade or so? Is, is it okay to be gay in Orlando? Well, you know, Florida has changed a great deal over the past decade or so. We're the third largest state in the country, and because of the work of local activists and Equality Florida and others, more than 50% of the population live in places that have non-discrimination protections. But those protections don't exist everywhere. They don't exist statewide, and they don't exist in some of the most hostile places. I would say Orlando has been one of those beacons of light in Florida, a place that has pretty comprehensive protections, has a supportive mayor, out city council members, and a real thriving LGBT community here. It is more than Disney, though Disney is also such a huge uh, corporate supporter around LGBT issues and gay days at Disney was just earlier this month. But having this happen in a place that is considered to be very welcoming, having it happen at Pulse, a bar that is located in the heart of the city and is very much the heart of the city, has added a layer of anger and fear to what uh, what has occurred here. So let's talk for a minute about the club uh, Pulse. I know you live in St. Petersburg, but have you ever been to Pulse in Orlando? What can you tell us about Pulse? For the folks who live here, Pulse has been almost a de facto community center. It is a, a, a gathering place. It is quite literally the center of town. 
lots of community groups have had fundraisers there, including our Equality Florida. It is a place with a big heart that has always been willing to to support the work of groups. And for those who grow up, you know, anywhere in the country, if you talk to gay people, you will find that for those of us who grew up in a world where it was dangerous to hold hands in public, gay bars hold a special significance, a special sense of safety, a special place where we can be ourselves. And uh, there are people, many of us who came out at a gay bar before we came out to our family and even to some of our closest friends. So the symbolism of this happening during Pride Month, where we acknowledge and recognize the importance of the Stonewall Rebellion against police violence, you know, it just sort of sets it in the context of what gay bars have actually been to our community beyond a place, uh, an important place to relax and have fun. What do we know about the victims at this point? Did you know any of them? The, the most famous seems to have been Edward Sotomayor, the popular travel planner who ran gay cruises, including the first gay cruise to Cuba. Quite impressive. The paper says they call him Top Hat Eddie. Did you know him or any of these other victims? I did know Eddie, and we have a staff. The largest concentration of our staff is in Orlando, and uh, staff members have lost very close friends. And I know there, that it has been even more painful because the even finding out, you know, the booking of the dead has taken so so much longer because of the circumstances of their death. And so it has been a, a shock that is just now beginning to settle on us. The vigil last night when the names were read, you began to comprehend just the length of time it took to read those names, and then listening to the bells toll for each of their lives, it began to sink in at a whole different level. Uh, but it's been taken from us. Tell us a little bit more about the vigil, who organized it, who came to it? Equality Florida, we organized it, partnered with uh, local organizations, with the city. We wanted to make sure that we sent the message that this was not an act that would turn us against each other. This was not a place where we would give in to fear. This was not a place where we would allow hate to flourish. And if you looked on the stage, you would see the diversity of the city. You would see all races, all religions, young and old, LGBT, uh, standing with our allies, elected leaders. And perhaps the most moving and powerful moment was when those the folks from Pulse, including those who had been in the club that night, took the stage, mm. and the roar of the crowd, the love coming from that crowd, I know is part of that long, that long path to healing. But it was a beautiful moment, a beautiful event, and there were probably 10,000 people gathered. And um, I know that it meant a lot for the people who live here and the people who survived that night to see that outpouring of love. And as diverse as the stage was, if you looked out on the crowd, you saw it in the crowd. We are part of every community, every demographic. We are Christians and Jews and Muslims and atheists. And it's important to note that this was not only an attack on a gay club, but it was an attack on a gay club on Latin night. Yeah. And as you, as we read the names of those who, whose lives have been taken you know, the clarity that these were overwhelmingly young people 
part of the Latino community was very apparent. And so we saw this as a moment to show solidarity and to not get into hate. And the outpouring of support from all over the world and all over the country has been felt here on the ground in Orlando. We set up a GoFundMe page. Tell us about the GoFundMe yeah. project, which Equality Florida has launched. Well, in the immediate aftermath, even as the, we weren't clear on all of the details, what was clear was there were many people dead and that there were many people clinging to life and that for the families of these people, for, their, for the survivors and for those who are facing uh, medical medical complications that will be extensive, we, we knew that if we could do nothing else, we could get them some support. And so we, we started a GoFundMe to answer the question, the immediate question that came, which was, what, what can we do? We set the first limit at $100,000, and the response was overwhelming. The last time I looked, it was, uh, was past $3 million. Wow. So it has been incredible, and I know that for the folks here on the ground, the symbolism of seeing that kind of response has been very powerful, and for the victims knowing that people are sending more than prayers and thoughts, sending resources means a lot, too. I guess we have to talk about the gunman a little. Omar Mateen, an American citizen, 29 years old, worked as a security guard for a big private security company called G4S. There are these news reports. His ex-wife said that he might have been gay. Patrons of Pulse were quoted in news reports saying that he had visited the club several times. What do you make of these reports? Well, you know, in the wake of mass shootings, there's often speculation about what motivated, and uh, I don't think it's my place to okay. speculate. But I will say this: what animated uh, the the murder and the injury that has been inflicted in Orlando is hate. And we live in a culture where we are taught to hate. We are taught that LGBT people aren't supposed to exist, and if we exist, we're supposed to hide, and if we don't hide successfully enough, any injury or harm that comes to us is our own fault. And that message is delivered to us whether we are gay or straight. And I don't know whether the hatred that nourished his sick mind was directed externally to the LGBT community or if he was dealing with his own internalization of those messages, but regardless we have to uproot the hate that is at the core of what happened in Orlando. And can we talk about politics here for a minute? Hillary said that the United States has to work with allies and partners to stop terrorist attacks like this one. And she emphasized that this was not just terrorism, but, as you say, an act of hate against the gay community. Donald Trump emphasized that the attacks came from an Islamic extremist and that we need more, quote, toughness and less, quote, political correctness than President Obama has been providing. He has intensified uh, his call for a ban on all Muslim immigrants, even though this guy was an American 
citizen. Trump is described in the media as, quote, taking a hardline stance on terrorism, close quote, in this case. Is that how you would describe Donald Trump's comments on the Orlando shootings? No, I would describe his comments as ignorant and false. This is an American citizen. I don't know whether, you know, I don't know what his actual ideology is. Pick a narrative. Was he a conflicted gay guy lashing out because of his own internalized homophobia? Was he someone who actually subscribed to a twisted ideology? Was he part of a hyper-masculine cult of fascination with violence? You know, we're using this logic. We can say, you know what? It's guys with guns that seem to be the problem. So let's ban men from immigrating to America. It is absurd. It is it panders to fear. And he got the facts wrong. And he doesn't care about facts. We have a problem in this country when people can get their hands on military weapons that are designed to kill as many people as quickly as possible. My neighbor cannot have a nuclear warhead because that would make him feel safe. We understand collectively that that would be utter disaster. The framers of the Constitution, no matter how liberally you might or permissively you might interpret the Second Amendment, could not have envisioned a day when you can fire 700 bullets in a matter of moments. It's absurd to think that it is okay to allow people to gain access to weapons of mass slaughter, and we have to address that. So last question, if people want to help, what's the easiest way to find the GoFundMe website? You can visit our website, equalityflorida.org, and feel free to contact us directly at hr at eqfl.org. I know that there are companies that have donated services. American Airlines and JetBlue have donated flying you know, miles to allow family members to travel. There are lots of companies right now looking for ways that they can help, and we're happy to be a part of ensuring that those resources get where they're needed most. EqualityFlorida.org. Nadine Smith of Equality Florida. We're with you now, and thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for reaching out, and I think that the lasting memorial that we can provide to people is to uproot anti-LGBT hatred, discrimination, and hatred against any minorities in this country at their root, and uh, we're going to continue to do that work. We appreciate you reaching out. Thank you. Bernie Sanders won the battle of ideas in the Democratic Party, but maybe you heard Hillary won the Democratic nomination for president. How can the party build on both of these victories? For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, is this talk of victory for Bernie's ideas just empty rhetoric to console the losers, or, or is there a way we can measure Bernie's ideological success? Well, I'd say there are two metrics. Uh, the first is to note that Hillary switched her position on a number of issues so that they moved into alignment with Bernie's. So that would be on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, 
on the Keystone XL pipeline, which she had given uh, some preliminary support to when she was back at the State Department. On the size of uh, the minimum wage hike, she moved part of the way. There, there are a number of issues on which she moved closer to Bernie. By contrast, I can't think of any issues on which Bernie took a position and then shifted to Hillary's. So that that's kind of a you know, crude scorecard method. There, there's a second, though, uh, a metric, which I think is, is more significant. And that is that what I think Bernie has done is position the party to make sort of the third great pivot of the 20th century uh, and 21st century. I guess we're in the 21st century now. That being the first one was between 1928 and 1936. In the 20s, the Democrats essentially didn't really differentiate themselves from the Republicans on economic issues. So much so that the chair of the Democratic National Committee between 28 and 32 was the head of the finance committee of General Motors and really was the conciliary to uh, the DuPont family, who were General Motors' largest shareholders, that, that being a guy named John J. Raskob. By the time Franklin Roosevelt ran for president in 1936, Raskob and the 1928 uh, Democratic presidential nominee, Al Smith, vehemently opposed him and, you know, feared that he was bringing communism in. What he had done, of course, what Roosevelt had done was responded to the Great Depression and uh, really redefined what the Democratic Party was and brought a whole lot of new voters uh, in the process. And then the party redefined itself again in 1964-65 when it became, uh, instead of a party that accommodated the segregationist white South, the party that began to advocate for minority rights with the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and what have you. And since that time, the party has uh, correctly been the party to stand up for uh, the individual rights of uh, minorities, be they by race, gender, sexual inclination, what have you. But when, and, and this is a point that uh, Jeff Cowie, a historian, up until recently at Cornell, now at Vanderbilt, makes in his uh, new book, The Great Exception. The, in 1964-65, when the Democrats made this pivot, they assumed uh, that they were you know, going to create paths of entry for all of these discriminated against minorities into the mainstream, vibrant economy, which was indeed vibrant in 1964-65. They didn't count on that part of the Democratic legacy uh, falling into disarray and just disappearing generally, but it did. But it did. And so I think what Bernie Sanders has done this year is he's placed the whole question of creating a more egalitarian and well-functioning economy and critiquing capitalism itself, at least as we practice it currently, uh, into the mainstream of ideas. And so the, the, the question is, will his people be able to carry it forward? But I think that's his, his signal contribution to uh, American, not just American politics, American history this, uh, this spring. And so it's, uh, it's a whale of a contribution. It is indeed a whale of a contribution. And it is inspiring to hear that in the past the Democrats have been able to to pivot, to redefine themselves. But but polls show now, anyway, that many voters say that Hillary switching her positions is not a great step forward. It shows only that she'll say anything to get elected and that she can't be trusted. I wonder if you think there's anything Hillary can do about that. Is there anything we can do about that? Well, that's kind of the catch-22 uh, that she's uh, she's stuck with. Uh, 
I think Hillary has, generally speaking, over the last 20-some years, been on the receiving end of some, you know, gratuitously hostile press, some of which she brings on herself by her general fears of encountering the press at all, but most of which she doesn't bring on herself. Uh, that said, I think it's hard for her to uh, work out of that box, as you, uh, as you defined it. And I think what we can do, what people on the left can do, is say, good that she's taken these positions, and we're going to keep active as a uh, pressure group to make sure that she doesn't uh, fall away from those positions. I mean, in, in as much as she took these positions because she was politically compelled to, the way to hold her to those positions is continue to is to continue to politically compel her. Yes. And there's one other poll result that that worries me. You talk about Hillary having been stuck in what you call that box. There there was an NBC poll last month that showed Americans viewed Donald Trump as better in dealing with Wall Street than Hillary by by a huge margin, 21%. That's that's kind of dismaying. What what do you make of that? Well, what I make of that is that the fact that uh, uh, she gave those speeches to Goldman Sachs is is the kind of fact that uh, pretty much everyone can uh, understand and draw their own conclusions <laughs> from. I, I I think in in making that point, Bernie Sanders did two things. One was yes, that helped contribute to the gap you just referred to. Two, though, if, if she is elected, which is still the more likely possibility, it makes it very hard for her to do what both the last two Democratic presidents, Bill Clinton, her husband, and Barack Obama have done, which is go to Wall Street for her main uh, financial appointees, be they Robert Rubin in the Bill Clinton administration or Timothy Geithner and, and Larry Summers, both of whom are protégés of Robert Rubin, in the Obama uh, administration. So uh, that, that's a positive effect, which is not negligible, which is a large effect, I think, of Bernie having highlighted. You know, really, I mean, there's just an appalling lack of judgment on Hillary's part. I mean, uh, Occupy Wall Street had already occupied and, and uh, you know, made its message clear uh, at the time uh, when she agreed to go speak to Goldman Sachs. So what, what on earth, where her political antenna were, uh, God only knows. God only knows, and I know her her friends were telling her, you can't do this if you want to be president. Yeah. So it, it wasn't like this came out of this, this uh, problem came out of the blue. It was there at the beginning. Uh, you wrote, uh, Harold Meyerson, in The American Prospect that Hillary and the Democratic Party as a whole need to, quote, join the deplutocratization project, close quote. I would suggest that as a slogan doesn't really match yes we can right or right. <laughs> or, or or I'm with her on the other hand yes we can doesn't really mean much of anything and I'm with her is about as as low level statement of political ideology as possible but perhaps we could come up with something better than join the deplutocratization project yeah, well, I mean, what we need is Democrats against Wall Street. Uh, That's good. That's uh, good. Something like that. Uh, really aiming for bumper sticker <laughs> language <laughs> okay. there. Uh, okay. Although I, I think I think if 
if we had honest bumper stickers uh, this fall, I think a lot of them would essentially say resign to Hillary. <laughs> uh, but uh, okay. I, I, there's not much of a market for, uh, for honest bumper stickers. You have pointed to a couple of times in the past when the progressive forces in the Democratic Party pre- moved the party as a whole to take a significant step to the left. There's, there's one more that I think we need to mention, and now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Garrison Keeler. Harold, I'm sure you know what I'm thinking about. Which Minnesotan was the hero of the last Democratic convention in Philadelphia? Ah, I do know that. That was Hubert Humphrey in 1948, who made yes. a... Uh, a, a terrific speech uh, arguing for the inclusion of a civil rights plank for the first time ever in the Democratic uh, in the Democratic platform, and it, uh, it was not something that the incumbent Democratic president Harry Truman uh, had really been pushing. But once the delegates passed it, and, and to a certain degree, they passed it because Humphrey was so eloquent and so appealing. Once the Democrats passed it, it was part of the, the stuff that. Uh, Harry Truman ran on uh, to his surprising re-election. Uh, he ran basically a very progressive campaign in 1948 to assure uh, his uh, potential supporters that he was going to carry on the legacy of Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, the civil rights plank sure the hell helped. There's a, a, a quote which everyone in Minnesota learns at, a, at an early age what Hubert Humphrey said. This is 1948. The time has arrived in America for the Democratic Party to get out of the shadow of states' rights and walk into the bright sunshine of human rights, close quote. Hubert Humphrey, the man from Minnesota. So, and oh, actually what it led to was uh, the uh, some southern states walking out of the convention yes. and, and running uh, Strom Thurmond on a, uh, a splinter Dixiecrat ticket for president, who I think carried a couple southern states, but that was it. So do you see any signs now that the deplutocratization project is is uh, underway? What will the what will the first signs be, and what will the big markers be on the on the road? Well, uh, to begin with, uh, both Clinton and Sanders have spoken about strengthening financial regulation. So that that's uh, that's good. Clinton has her program, which deals with sort of things things like dark pools, which sound like you know dark energy or dark matter. We know they're out there, but we can't quite measure them. Kinds of trading of securities and derivatives that are unregulated, which is important. And Bernie, of course, calls for. Uh, resurrecting a, a, a more modern version of Glass-Steagall, which would break up the big banks. What's interesting is that each campaign has said it, what it's arguing for is superior to the other, uh, but neither one has really criticized the other, which leads me to think there's no reason uh, on God's good earth why the Democrats couldn't support both uh, in the platform. And maybe that's something that Hillary and uh, Bernie can... Uh, come to agreement on. We, we shall see. Uh, there are other things, too. The financial transaction tax, which Bernie not only calls for, but which he then dedicates to making college tuition free again in public colleges and universities, as in most states it was back in the day. Uh, that, 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 that sort of stuff. And giving, you know, creation of more workers' rights, etc. But, I mean, by and large, uh, Clinton has to realize that 
the democratic program of, of promoting uh, individual minority rights is, is hugely important. But it wasn't enough for her to carry young people's votes, even in constituencies she otherwise uh, won, like uh, women voters and minority voters. Nonetheless, Bernie carried uh, voters under 30 in all of those categories because they are, many of them, the victims, not simply of the kind of discrimination that the Democrats have been dealing with now since 63, 64, or since Hubert Humphrey's speech, but they're also the victims of an economic system that has totally screwed young people since 2008, and which, uh, which they need to remedy. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Thank you, John. Today we want to remember the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 39, a huge event in the rise of fascism in Europe and in the history of the left in America. For that, we turn to Adam Hochschild, one of my favorite historians and writers. He's the co-founder of Mother Jones and the award-winning author of eight books. Now he has a new book out. It's called Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 39. Adam Hochschild, welcome back. Thank you, John. Good to be here again. Well, just remind us, why was there a civil war in Spain? Well, Spain actually was a bright spot in Europe in the early 1930s. In 1931, uh, the king left the country, centuries of monarchy came to an end, and real elections were held for the first time. In early 1936, a coalition of left and liberal parties won the national elections. People, progressives around the world expected reforms would go on faster. And then in July 1936, a group of right-wing army officers rose up in revolt against this elected government, and a very bloody civil war went on for nearly three years. And why did Americans go there to fight? Well, volunteers from all over the world uh, started flocking to Spain uh, because it seemed to be the place where fascism was now advancing in Europe because these right-wing generals from whom a tough-talking young general named Francisco Franco soon emerged as their leader were heavily supported by Hitler and Mussolini. People around the world, small-D Democrats, progressives everywhere were appalled. Thousands of people began flocking to Spain to volunteer to help. Uh, the Soviet Union wanted to channel and control that force of volunteers. Stalin passed the word to communist parties around the world to recruit people to fight in Spain. And this force became known as the International Brigades. There were 2,800 Americans who went and fought there. 2,800 Americans went to fight for the republic in Spain. Uh, most of them were communists. Half were Jews, you say. Why was that? There was a, an American volunteer named Maury Kolau from New York who, after the war, said, for us, it was never Franco. It was always Hitler. We don't know the exact percentage of Jews. It was somewhere between a third and a half because a lot of American Jews, like American everything else, changed their, na changed their names at Ellis Island. But uh, a lot of the Americans often found that Yiddish was a common language they had with the volunteers who came from other countries to fight in Spain. Everybody was alarmed about the rise of fascism and uh, perhaps Jews more than anybody else. Barcelona in 1936. 
If you were an American arriving there, what would you have found? Well, the fascinating thing about this Spain, uh, Spain at this time, was that it was the scene of both a right-wing military coup and a left-wing social revolution at the same moment. In northeastern Spain, especially Barcelona, the country's second largest city, surrounding Catalonia, Aragon, the region next door, the coup was turned back not by loyal soldiers in the army, but by militias that had been organized by left-wing political parties and trade unions, hastily organized, badly trained. But when they defeated the coup attempt in those regions of the country, these workers' militias found themselves in control of a huge swath of Spain. And they put into effect the most far-reaching social revolution that Western Europe has ever seen. Workers took over factories, including the Ford and General Motors plants in Barcelona. Peasants took over these huge estates where they had worked as landless laborers. Uh, waiters took over restaurants. Uh, locomotive engineers took over the railway system. And uh, Europe had never really seen anything like this. They were driven above all by the anarchist tradition, which was very strong in Spain, although strangely it had pretty much died out almost everywhere else in the world. Let's talk about George Orwell. Let's talk about homage to Catalonia. That's where I first learned about the Spanish Civil War, about Barcelona, about the anarchists. Well, I think it's one of the great nonfiction books of the 20th century. Orwell was 33 years old, went to Spain to help out, to volunteer to fight, ended up fighting in the militia of a small left-wing political party, the PUM, which was sort of semi-allied with the anarchists uh, on the left, but very anti-Stalinist. Spent uh, three months at the front, uh, described this experience in a wonderfully vivid way in homage to Catalonia. Then he got caught up in a very nasty internecine conflict because this social revolution we were speaking about was essentially suppressed and violently so uh, in May of 1937 by a peculiar alliance of the Spanish communists and the mainstream parties of the Spanish Republic who felt not unreasonably that it was a mistake to try to make a social revolution when you're up against an army backed by Hitler and Mussolini. This is a big question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Leftists have been arguing about that ever since. <laughs> and they, they still are. Yes. At the same time, the Communist Party was very eager to take control of the whole process, not to allow other forces on the left to exist. And Stalin in particular had it in for this quite small party, the PUM, because it was headed by uh, a couple of people who had formerly been communists and actually lived in the Soviet Union, then left and started an anti-Stalinist party, opposed and criticized the Moscow purge trials. And for Stalin, of course, this was heresy and they became enemy number one. There's many wonderful things about uh, Orwell's book, Homage to Catalonia. But one of the most impressive things to me, even today, is how undoctrinaire he was, how he admitted to being ignorant, being naive, not really understanding a lot of what was going on. Well, one of the pleasures for me in writing about this period was the chance to uh, read Homage to Catalonia for the fourth and then fifth time <laughs> okay. in my life. And I came to appreciate his humility mm -hmm. because normally – 
anybody who is reporting from the middle of a conflict in another country wants to sound as authoritative as possible. I certainly do. And, <laughs> and I do too. But Orwell says a couple of times in that book, uh, you know, I'm just reporting what I saw. And I saw only one corner of events. And to his enormous credit, I think, he actually changed his mind about some things in Spain. Originally, when he wrote the book, he'd been caught up in this internecine fighting. Uh, many foreigners who were associated with the Puma and the anarchists, including some friend of his, were captured, imprisoned. A friend of his died in prison. Uh, he knew they were looking for him. He had to go underground, leave the country. This loomed very large when he wrote the book. And he said, I feel if we hadn't had this terrible civil war within the civil war and had let the revolution go forward, the republic could have won the civil war. By five years later, he changed his mind. And he said what almost all historians say today, which is that the other side won, Franco's nationalists won, because they were being backed by Hitler and Mussolini. And the democracies, Britain, France, and the United States, stood aside, would not sell arms to the Spanish Republic. If FDR had been willing to sell American arms to the Republic, could the Republic have defeated Franco? Possibly. Uh, you know, what-if scenarios are always fun to play with, but you never know for certain. I think if right at the beginning, some combination of the major democracies, Britain, France, the United States, and of course, there are a lot of smaller countries that followed their lead, had shown themselves willing to sell arms to the Spanish Republic, which incidentally had the money to buy weapons because... Hmm. Spain had the world's fourth largest gold reserves. They had been neutral during the First World War, had traded profitably with both sides at a time when all the other major nations of Europe were caught up in the war and spending themselves deeply into debt. If some combination of the democracies had sold arms to the Spanish Republic right at the beginning, I think it's possible they could have won the war. And most importantly, perhaps, the republic wouldn't have been dependent on Stalin. Absolutely, because Stalin actually held back for the first three months. He was hoping that Britain and France would sell the republic arms. Uh, he didn't want to get embroiled in a war on the far side of Europe. Uh, he held back. It was three months before he sent any arms. At that point, the republic was about to lose. Stalin, you know, paranoid though he was, knew he was up against a real enemy in Hitler, didn't want Hitler to have another ally, and at that point started supplying arms to republican Spain. Let's talk about Texaco. Okay. This was an aspect of the war which the more I learned about it, the more it surprised me. I knew nothing about this. And the more... It, it still surprises me that it's only a footnote in histories of the period. Uh, there was an obvious question which all of those foreign correspondents in Madrid, Hemingway and all of the others, should have asked. They were being bombed by Hitler's aircraft. Uh, first time a major European capital had been under heavy, sustained aerial bombardment. They never looked up and asked, where is the fuel for those planes coming from? Should have been an obvious question because nationalist Spain had no oil wells. Hitler and Mussolini, who were funneling all these arms to Franco, were oil importers, not exporters. The major source of oil in the United States in the world at that point was the United States. However, American neutrality legislation said that 
anything from the U.S. going to a country at war could not travel in American ships. Nationalist Spain had no oil tankers. And it couldn't be sold on credit. And Nationalist Spain had very little cash on hand. However, not a problem. Franco had a great admirer who was the CEO of Texaco, Norwegian immigrant named Torkild Reber. Uh, and he was such a fan of Franco that he went to Nationalist Spain twice during the war, got a VIP tour of the front at one point, violated U.S. law by uh, selling Franco oil on credit, violated U.S. law by shipping it there in Texaco's own tankers, also sold that oil to Franco at a huge discount, didn't tell Texaco shareholders about this. It's not in the company's annual reports. And as far as we can tell from the minutes of their meetings, he never even told his board of directors. And he supplied the nationalists with a steady stream of intelligence gleaned from Texaco's representatives in ports around the world having to do with oil shipments to the Spanish Republic. And this was the kind of information that would help uh, nationalist Spain's bomber pilots and submarine captains looking for, for targets. We're speaking with Adam Hochschild. His book is Spain in Our Hearts. I want to ask you to read uh, one passage, one of my favorites. The international brigades uh, were pulled out of Spain at a huge event in Barcelona, October 28, 1938. Read us your description of what happened there. From packed sidewalks, from windows and crowded balconies draped with flags, and from precarious footholds on sycamore trees and lampposts, 300,000 Spaniards wept, cheered, waved, and threw flowers, confetti, and notes of thanks. It was October 28, 1938, and 2,500 troops from what was left of the international brigades were marching down the Diagonal, one of Barcelona's grand avenues, for an official farewell. Along the boulevards were signs with names of the battles in which the volunteers had fought. The brigades had borne the brunt of so much combat that their soldiers had been killed at nearly three times the rate of the rest of the Republican army. Many of the internationals still in Spain were in hospitals, but men from 26 countries made it to the parade. The gaunt files of marchers could barely be seen over the heads of the vast crowds who turned out to cheer them. The 200 Americans who marched included a handful of nurses from the medical detachment. The rest were men who came along the avenue with blanket rolls slung over their right shoulders, the shabbiest of uniforms, and mismatched footgear. They walked nine abreast, sometimes ankle-deep in flowers. As the volunteers marched through the city, they could see the gutted buildings and peeled-away apartment house wars, walls that bore testimony to Mussolini's intensive bombing raids earlier in the year. Republican fighter planes flew overhead on guard against new attacks. Bands played but could barely be heard. The women and children were jumping into our arms, remembered a New York volunteer, calling us sons, brothers, calling, come back. I never had such an experience because these men, such tough fighters, every last one of them was crying. Milton Robertson, a medical student, wounded at the Ebro, was in a group of internationals who were driven to the parade from a hospital. The roar of cheering was continuous, he wrote home the next day. It was like a wave that never broke but poured on. A little boy, nine or ten years old, stood on the corner, 
Tears streaked a dirty line down his face. He saw our truck bearing down, saw the bandages flash about. He dashed out, met the truck, and clambered up the side, tears still streaming down his face. He thrust his arms about me and kissed me on both cheeks. I kissed him, tasting his tears. Adam Hochschild, his new book is Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War, 1936-39. to Adam Hochschild, thanks so much for this book, and thanks for coming by today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.